Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is Paul Conroy. You may not know Paul, but you do know the things that he has worked on. I will do my best to summarize his very lengthy resume here. Once I get through with it, you will understand why I'm so excited to have him on the show. He was an A&R at Roadrunner Records, legendary rock and metal label. He managed a bunch of bands, including Lamb of God, Every Time I Die, Unearth, and 18 Visions. He was a partner in Ferret Music, partner in Good Fight, worked for Crush Sports, where they worked with athletes such as Chris Cole, Jamie Thomas, Quentin Rampage Jackson, a bunch of other folks. CEO of Deer Deck Enterprises, you know Deer Deck, Rob Deer Deck, Street League Skateboarding, all that stuff. Worked for the Agency Group Plus Foundry, which is a company that specializes in building brand-owned commercial events. Now he is the founder and managing director of Impact Real Life, where they bring events to life with companies such as Vans, where they're developing the Park Series together. Basically, he is a fucking badass entrepreneur, one of the most intelligent minds of business that I have ever encountered in the music industry, and so that is why I wanted to have him on the show, to talk about what it takes to bring an idea from life to start to finish, and also to unpack a lot of his thoughts on what is, in my opinion, the most difficult and important part of business, controlling your own psychology and mindset. So we get into all that stuff. Really, 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 really like this episode. So please do me and yourself a favor and listen to the whole thing because I think it's pretty great. Before I get into it though, there are a few things that you can do to support the show if you like it. Number one, you can share it on social media. Tag me, tag Paul, tag our producer Deanna. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok. We don't care. Anything you can do to help spread the word helps a lot. Second, you could buy a piece of merch. There's a link to that in the show notes if you would like a Punk Rock NBA shirt. Number three, you can support the show on Patreon if you really, really, really like us. Patrons get every episode of the podcast a week early. There's an opportunity to have me review your band or podcast or YouTube channel or any other kind of project that you want to send my way. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. And with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Good morning, Paul Conroy. Thanks so much for making time for this. I know you're a busy man. You got a lot of stuff to do. We're all grounded, but I'm sure you're staying busy. I am staying busy, but I'm really uh, happy to be on with you, Finn. Look forward to our conversation. I appreciate it. Well, for anybody who's not familiar, can you? I know this is going to be hard, but can you give us your life story in, say, three minutes? Woo! <laughs> if it goes three and a half, that's okay too. All right. Yeah, as a 50 year old, that's a lot of living in uh, three and a half minutes. So I grew up in a working class family just outside of Northeast Philadelphia. I would say growing up, I was fairly underachieving student. I was really passionate about sports. I was 
a slightly better than average athlete, was super passionate about music, wasn't a musician though, graduated high school, went to college for mechanical engineering, failed out of uh, engineering school and kind of backdoored my way into uh, a mathematics degree. After college, got really into uh, sales in the construction industry. I would say in my early 20s, I was making more money than most of my peers, but I was like rotting from the inside out. Like I, I realized very quickly, like corporate life was not for me. By the grace of the universe, I found a path to being in the music industry because a guy who worked in a warehouse at my company was in a band in Philadelphia, and he's just like, hey, man, like you're always going to shows. Uh, you're good people. Do you want to manage us? And like literally, that started my journey into the music industry. I'd say three years in, I was massively in debt on the brink of financial and personal disaster. Got offered a job to be day-to-day -day manager for Kid Rock's management company, like late 90s when he was blowing up yeah. for a bit. Got hired to become an A&R rep at Roadrunner Records. Um, I was a terrible A&R rep, which I'm <laughs> sure we'll get more into. And again, by the grace of the universe, kind of got pulled out of uh, Roadrunner and into management thanks to a relationship I'd built with Lamb of God. And a gentleman named Larry Mazur, who was managing an artist I'd signed to uh, Roadrunner Records, did that for a bit. I developed a pretty long-standing relationship with Carl Severson, who is working at Roadrunner in digital marketing, but he also was building Ferret Music. Carl brought me in as a partner. Carl and I worked together for years from Ferret into Good Fight, which of course now exists today. And then backstage at a Children of Bodom concert, I met Chris Cole, who was a huge fan of Children of Bodom. They were a management client of ours. Chris and I kind of grew up in the same general vicinity in Philadelphia. Had when a lot was of this? This was 2009. So this was after he had blown up, but not. But he wasn't like a legend yet. Right. And this was like pre-DC Shoes, like pre-Monster, pre-Street League, but like Fallen Zero, yeah. you know, killing it. Like, I think he had just gotten Skater of the Year and Thrasher if I remember correctly. So him and I built this relationship. I'm out to dinner with him and his wife one night. His wife recommends I start working with pro skateboarders. At the time, I'm living in Philadelphia. It like, for some reason, like many conversations do, it hit me super hard. I couldn't let go of the feeling. And within months, I'd talked to my wife into moving to Carlsbad, California. I'd split from the music business went all in working in skateboarding, BMX, and then uh, through a mutual friend of ours, Biggie, who I worked with inside of music, he had a friend that was working with a couple of MMA fighters, started doing some brand deals for Rampage Jackson, Mike Bisbing. From there, became CEO of Deerdick Enterprises. Rob and I worked together for quite some time. Did a lot of cool things inside of Deerdick, developed Street League skateboarding, developed a production company, big brand partnerships. Went back to the music industry briefly on the senior management team for the agency group, where like a lot of my closest friends were working as booking agencies. That was a pretty short run for me. Like at that point, I was pushing up on 45 and really missed being an entrepreneur. So at 45, like left the agency group, started what has now become Impact Real Life, which is about four and a half years ago. Our business now focuses on 
building event-based businesses with brands and media companies. I would say the the client we have that kind of best represents our work. Uh, we've worked with Vans in developing Vans Park Series, a professional skateboarding league from the concept stage. At this point, Vans Park Series is one of the leading global professional skateboarding platforms. How much time was that? <laughs> I think that was right about four minutes, I would say. So nice work. I left my stopwatch at the office, so I don't know. But each one of those things you mentioned could be a whole podcast of its own. For the people who are listening to this, what are some of the bands that you've worked with that they might recognize just to kind of get a sense of where you've played? Absolutely. Uh, Lamb of God, of course, big one for me. So when I pivoted from Roadrunner into management, which was in the spring of 2003, Within a matter of weeks, uh, I'd built a management roster of Lamb of God, Unearth, Every Time I Die, and 18 Visions. Later on that year, I had an opportunity to manage As I Lay Dying as well, too, who was coming up pretty pretty uh, quickly at that point. But I just had so much on my plate with the roster I had. I connected those guys with friends of mine, Strong Management, who they, and they were working with Killswitch Engage at the time as well, too. So that was kind of like the the beginning of a pretty awesome rise for that that community of music and then beyond that when i went to ferret of course every time i die was there as well too uh in flames on the come clarity record was a record that we'd released as well too we signed Madball. a life once lost was a ferret artist when i was there boys night out as well too then <laughs> when ferret evolved into good fight we ramped up management yet again, and during that run, Job for Cowboy, Cannibal Corpse, Behemoth, Between the Buried and Me, August Burns Red, Children of Bodom, and it, and by then, like inside of Good Fight, I had an amazing crew of like managers that walked worked alongside of me, Chuck Andrews, Biggie, Tim Zahodsky. So like we had like an amazing team managing that collection of bands. And I would say beyond those artists, uh, you know, some other things I was a part of, Sounds of the Underground, which was kind of our crack at taking OzFest to a bit more of like an underground place almost. And, and honestly, I thought that was going to be like a huge business moment for me and a huge cultural moment for me and my partners. We did a tour called uh, the 10 for 10 tour, which is more of like a hardcore tour, 10 bands for 10 bucks. I remember that one, yeah. Yeah, we took, we took a collection of artists and put them in venues that were kind of larger venues for like the scene at that point. That was a fun tour. In 2004, I had like three artists on OzFest at the same time. And that was the year where the second stage Slipknot was headlining. Then it was Hatebreed. Then right under that was Lamb of God. So like I had Lamb of God on Earth and Every Time I Die on that second stage, which was incredible. But as a young manager with like bands on tour buses for the very first time. Pure chaos for me. Oh, I'm sure. Cool. Well, I just kind of wanted to establish that so people understand where you're coming from. I mean, that's pretty much a who's who of, you know, most loved bands for most of the people listening to this, I would guess. But the thing that I wanted to focus this conversation on is kind of how you take an idea from that initial kind of conversation to the point where it's a real business that's got its legs under it and you can kind of take a breath and go 
all right, like we've got something that's working because I think that's where a lot of people's heads are at. So talk about like when you have an initial conversation with somebody, whether that is an artist or an athlete or business partner, any of those people that, you know, you're sitting around backstage or, you know, at dinner or something and they're like, Paul, dude, I got an idea. Talk to me about what happens in that conversation. What do you need to hear that makes you go, all right, there's something here that we should take seriously. Yeah. And man, what you just described is one of my favorite moments in life beyond like family, right? Like, and I, you know, the reason I've pivoted in different industries or done different things in indus- within industries, I love building new businesses, right? I would say that in the beginning, I thought music was my greatest passion. Building businesses happens to be my greatest passion. And like that, that moment where you're having that conversation, it's, it's intuitive for it's me. It's so fun. It, it really is. And like, I can't fake it, right? Like I, I need magic to happen. I think in the beginning, like if you go back years ago, I, the magic would happen and I didn't necessarily understand all of the hard work and commitment that was required to getting a business off the ground. Right. But it might've been a good thing that you didn't understand that because if you did, you might not have moved ahead with some of these things. hundred percent. I will tell you the biggest learning I have had in business when I was working with Rob Deerdick, and at that time, Rob had like three shows on MTV, right? So we had just opportunities everywhere. And we would get ourselves excited and start new businesses far too much. Seems like he's like a guy who's never short on ideas. He's never short on ideas. And unfortunately, at the time, I was short on discipline, <laughs> right? Drinking from the fire hose of opportunity and at the end of my run with him, we had done a few things that were amazing, right? But then we had also done things that were kind of on the mediocre side, which was really like my fault for not having the discipline. And to your point, stepping away from my time with Deerdick, I am far more diligent in the upfront of like unpacking a business idea and then also far more understanding of the fact that like, It requires commitment and iteration, like even like where my company is now versus where it starts. It almost looks like a different company, but it's just been a series of tweaks and adjustments. And I didn't have the patience to do that or the understanding or discipline to do that in the upfront or when I was younger. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but it's just I I think that thought process is important. I mean, that is the game. Like starting the business is step one of an infinite number of steps. The game is the iterating part. Yeah. And man, Finn, I, I will say this, too. Like one of the hugest learnings for me, and I think this is an important, like a really important thing for people to to hopefully understand. I, in the beginning, would get caught up on milestones in business, right? Deals getting done, events happening, plaques, whatever it was, like an artist being on the cover of like a magazine. And like when when your business is about chasing down milestones, right? It's not the right mindset. Mm. Like now mm. where I'm at, my I appreciate the building process every single day. And I've backed off of getting fixated on specific milestones. And I think when you're starting a new business, 
if you can truly appreciate the building process every day and iterating when mistakes are made versus getting fixated on, and I think goal setting is important, but it can't be all about the goals. It's really about the process. That was like something I learned definitely too late in life, but I really appreciate now. Well, let me tell you a couple things that I would look for in that conversation. You could tell me what you think, kind of react to these. Number one, I want to hear that somebody has an understanding of what you just said, that it's going to be a grind, that no matter how great this team is and how much we're excited about this idea, like there's a commitment here that is going to require real hard work that's not always fun. So like the mindset part. And number two, I want to hear some sort of a operational sense that there is a business here with sustainable unit economics that makes sense. And for anybody who doesn't know what unit economics means, that means, for example, if we're selling t-shirts, you know, if I sell a t-shirt for $2 that costs me $7 to make, then I make $3. And that might seem obvious, but there's a lot of businesses where the unit economics do not actually make sense. And after a couple conversations, it's you know kind of clear that whoever I'm talking with hasn't necessarily thought that through. And that's not a, I don't mean that to put them down. It's just, there's a lot of ideas that are exciting in terms of like, yeah, I believe we could get traction for this, but the unit economics don't make sense. So it's not actually a business. Yeah. And thank you for bringing some focus to, to our conversation. I think both those points are, are really, really important. I am more focused on your first point than your second point. Like the second point, there does have to be like general unit economics, right? Like to your point, like you can't go into it having like a negative margin, right? It's not gonna work, right? There are potentially adjustments that can be made to unit economics over time that make it a more potentially lucrative business. However, your first point, man, which is something I've gone through so many times, and I think because of your community, um, especially with artists, something really important to understand is like ability to focus, right? Like because I've built businesses with people that have been athletes or they have been musicians or they have been in film, I actually have built most of my businesses with people that were not focused on whatever it is we were working on as their core business. Right. And I think you can do it and that's okay. But what you can't do is have your hand in six different things, right? And if you're gonna be a music artist and you're gonna build a beauty brand or you're gonna build a fashion brand or whatever it is, you need to like double down on your commitment and discipline to make sure you can give that idea we're talking about the best shot possible. And I would say that when I, as I've gotten older, when I've passed on more business opportunities. It's been because of that, right? It's been because there's an amazing idea, a charismatic potential mm -hmm. founder. And then when you just peel back a few of the layers, you realize like they're kind of investing that energy into six different things. And man, building a business is really hard, right? So like you can't dilute your energy across too many things or it's not going to work. So let's say that it's past that initial filter and you're like, okay, cool. This person, this team gets it. I think they're in for the long haul. We've got this kind of rough idea and they've kind of said to you, Paul, take this and run with it from here. Tell us what to do next. Like what would be your next step? And I understand that's a broad question because it depends on the idea, but what would be your next steps from there? Yeah. So 
the next steps from there, uh, if it's an industry that is outside of like industry where I've already got subject matter expertise, you know, as I've gotten older, like deep diligence means everything. Right. So when I was working uh, with Haley Williams, the singer of Paramore, to build her hair brand, Good Die Young, back in 2014, when her and I connected on it, neither of us had a deep understanding of the hair care industry, right? Meaning like supply chain and regulatory issues and liability and all that kind of stuff? All of that stuff from, you know, what were, you know, what was the product development process like? What was like distribution like? You know, how do you get yourself into like Ulta? Do you want to be in a Target? And like, and what are the margin differences between right, the right, different right. retail? And like, and we didn't, I mean, we wouldn't have known where to even like manufacture a bottle of semi-permanent hair dye back then, right? And to Haley's credit, we spent almost six months just meeting with everybody we could across product development to supply chain to marketing and distribution. I mean, we just deep immersion in understanding the industry first. Then on the other side of that, it's like, all right, let's start to build a plan from here. Had you already committed to doing this before you did the research or you said, I like this idea, but let's do some diligence before we commit or what, where were your heads out there? With a lot of these kind of ventures, I try and break it down into stages and kind of manage expectations with like where our commitment level, where the commitment level on my side can yeah. be, right? But with Haley, her idea felt like magic to me. Uh, her commitment, I mean, so much so that like I went to pitch her because at the time I was working inside the agency group on like brand and licensing deal opportunities, right? Kind of cash opportunities. And she was like, I don't care about that. Like that's that's not important to me. Like if you wanna work with me, here's what's important to me. And she laid out her vision for Good Die Young and it blew me away. And what I said to her at that point, I'm like, all right, I, I believe there is a white space for like a hair coloring, hair care brand that is kind of for your community, right? Like by someone, a leader in your community, but I don't understand this industry. Like let's take a few months. Let's really lean into diligence. If you're committed to it, let's see where we're at on the other side, right? And like in that diligence process, while understanding the industry, even starting to think about, could this just be a license? Is this going to be a joint venture? Are we going to build this as a startup? And like, not right. only like understanding the the endemic aspect of hair, but also like, what should the business structure be, right? So then we got on the other side of that. Then Haley's like, you know what? Like, I want to take a step forward here. I don't want to have a partner yet. I don't want to license. I want to build this myself. I will put skin in the game to kind of get this thing off the ground. And then from there, hopefully you can help me find investors, right? So get just measured steps yep. along the way. And that's really been like my process in, my, in the latter half of my 40s. Instead of just diving into something, yep. being very measured, very diligent on the upfront. And it's okay to go down the road and then say, you know what? This one's not going to work. I did a project years ago for a, a group of partners who essentially wanted to do beats for a different genre of music. 
and they had the product development expertise and they had the artist relationships and they hired me to do the research on what would the go-to-market strategy look like for this if we were to do it. And so I did the research and I came back to them and I said, guys, I think that they spent about a billion dollars on marketing this thing to get it to the point where Apple was interested. Like, for example, getting Black Eyed Peas to do a performance with the Beats logo at the center of the fucking Super Bowl. So if you want to do this, that's what I think it takes. Do you think you can raise a billion dollars over the next eight years? And I wasn't saying that to be a dick. I was just like, this is what I found. If we want to do Beats, here's what it took them to do it. And we decided, all right, we have the product design expertise. We have the artist relationships. Getting that kind of capital together, probably not going to happen for us. So let's not do it. Absolutely. And I think that the ability, well, from your side, the ability to be super transparent, even if it feels on the harsher side, uh, like I don't view it as harsh. I view it as responsible. Yes. Right? But the ability to be responsible and very clear and to be able to pull back from something, even if you were initially very excited, that's important. And that's something I really struggled with when I was younger. The way I look at all these things is I want the answer to every question to be, yes, here's how. Yeah. And I actually learned that one working at Kinko's 20 some years ago. Cause you know, like every hardcore kid, I worked at Kinko's at one point when I was 19 or whatever. And that was the slogan for one of, they had like a quarterly campaign. And that was their slogan for that one because I know people would always come, like there's that Chappelle show skit where they go to Kinko's and it's like everything is such a pain in the ass. And they recognize that that was a pain point. And so they were telling all the associates, the answer should always be yes, here's how. And I really like that one because there is pretty much always a way to do it. It's just like, yes, we can make beats for this genre, but it's going to take us a billion dollars. Yes. And so with Haley, yes, we can do this. Here's what it's going to take in terms of, you know, supplier relationships, distribution relationships. Do we think we can do that? Yes, we do. Cool. Let's go for it. 100%. So let's talk about the go to market part of this, because to me, that's the part where so many of these ideas that I've seen people take part in fall apart. Go to market, meaning how do we bring this thing into the world in a way such that it gets the kind of sales traction that we need for it to be a real business, as opposed to what you see so many times is people have a cool product, cool idea, they put it out, kind of dies on the vine and everyone goes, well, fuck, that didn't work out. So how do you go about building a go-to-market strategy for something? Again, I understand it's an impossibly broad question, but what can you tell us about that? I think when it comes to go-to-market, the the most important thing you can do is get subject matter expertise in-house right whether you're able to make a full-time hire that is able to help you go to market in a specific industry or if you can't make a full-time hire perhaps there is a contractor right that you can bring on board that they can help you go to market inside of an industry a certain way and what i would say too even if you are bootstrapped financially, rev shares are always opportunities, right? And if you are having an issue getting someone with subject matter expertise to help you with your go-to-market strategy, you may have a problem with your business, right? Like the one thing I will say with some of the businesses I've built, even if you are an outsider the right ideas garnered a lot of interest from people that mm -hmm. were kind of endemic to the industry, right? And again, on the flip side, 
if you can't garner that support from within the industry, it's probably another pausing point, right? To like say, okay, what's wrong here? I think that trying to launch a product without all aspects of your business having some connectivity with like subject matter expertise support is a problem. I think that's like the best way I can kind of answer the more general question is try and find yourself subject matter. By the way, that's beyond go to market. Same thing with like supply chain, product development. If you can get those people connected to your idea, it's going to save you time and over the long haul, save you money as well, too. Make you money. And make you money. Yeah. So one thing you mentioned was RevShare. And can you break that down for anybody who might not know exactly what you mean by that? What would an arrangement like that look like? Sure. We have a, a project we're working on right now with my company that I can kind of use as an example. So my company is looking into a new industry. We have a concept that we're developing inside of a new industry, but it's still in the kind of experiential space, right? But it requires a lot of sophisticated diligence, consumer research, financial modeling, and at the like management consulting level almost, right? Just beyond our capabilities as a company. Very high level shit is what you're saying. Super high level shit, way beyond my pay grade, right? (laughs) And to get the support that we need, I couldn't afford, right? But I knew the, I, I believe the idea was fire, right? So there were two guys that could give us that kind of support we needed. And I said to them like, hey, like, I can't pay you an hourly, nor can I pay you a monthly retainer if it's a really good deal. But if we find success in this project, what I'm willing to offer you is a percentage of our revenue participation in this project as long as we're getting it, right? As long as we're making money, you're going to get a sliver of money for that. And because these guys were somewhat entrepreneurial in nature and they believed in the idea, they're like, okay, we're in. And I would even say, Finn, that that arrangement with them, I got more effort, more support. For sure. Your incentives are aligned. I love that. Like when you're paying people hourly, or I should say this is when I pitch this to people that I work with, I always say that I want a rev share. And the reason I tell them is because I don't like flat fees for two reasons. If you are paying me an hourly fee or, you know, whatever, monthly, weekly, that an hourly fee encourages me to spend more time on this than I need to. I don't like a flat fee because that encourages me to spend the least possible time on it. You don't care how long it takes me to do this. All you care about is results. So you should pay me based on the results so that our incentives are aligned. When I help you make more money, I make more money. We're on the same page here. 100%. And I think, you know, when it comes to starting a new business, being resourceful, being creative when it comes to how you engage people can be the difference between success or failure, right? So, and and look, it may be... um, it may be difficult to have a conversation with somebody that is accustomed to getting paid a retainer and asking them to think differently about it. But man, when you land on the other side of that conversation and it goes well, it can be a difference maker, right? And look, for us as a company, 
we have projects where we need a retainer because the commercial opportunity is not there for us on the back end, right? But our work product is so needed as part of that process. The equalizer for us is a retainer. And by the way, the way we work with our clients, it's like, if you don't feel like you're getting the value from us, you can fire us. Right. Right. But there are just some scenarios, especially more with bootstrapped startups, creative with RevShare. And I think RevShare is even like cleaner than like getting into like equity as yes. well, too. Yes. Just be creative that way. And to your point, if you pitch five people on a RevShare and all of them are like, eh, I don't know about that, then maybe you got a problem with your business. Absolutely. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from The Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where 
There's the video in the background in the player, and when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. So let me talk about one other thing here, which is, I, I suppose, part of go-to-market, but I'll break it out differently. Forecasting. How do you kind of size the potential opportunity for something? And I, I know I'm asking you super broad questions here, but how do you size? How big is this opportunity at the pre-product, pre-revenue kind of stage? Maybe the next stage after the napkin conversation, you know, when you're trying to figure out exactly how much money can we make this, make up this in the next three, five years. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, like your questions are like shooting right at the core of like my challenges in business in my 30s, right? Like just the things, I'm just having flashbacks <laughs> now, of like, oh man, like I used to just wing this shit years ago, right? <laughs> I think when it comes to forecasting, um, I will bring in third parties, right, to help me with the strategic planning side of things, right? So, like, while I can have, you know, somebody on my team or somebody on my board help me with, like, forecasting an opportunity, what I prefer to do, I've got, like, a trusted network of relationships that are, like, amazing at business planning and financial modeling, right? Tag them in. Here's what I'm thinking, right? Can you help me build out a five-year pro forma for this business concept, right? And those are people, by the way, that I'll largely just, all right, I'm going to have to allocate a chunk of money for this, right? I'm just going to pay them. I'm going to get fresh eyes, objective eyes with like a critical lens on my opportunity, right? And often what will happen, that feedback from whoever's building the financial model for me will make me realize like adjustments have to happen, yeah. right? Like, I, I mean, I, I think about the very first business plans I put together for the company I have now. I had business challenges that were identified early on by the people that were helping me build my model that basically caused me to have to pivot a couple of years down the road anyway, right? So yeah, I, I try to get outside of my own head and have somebody like, come to me, help me build out a plan that can like question me yeah. every step. Yeah. Just question every assumption under the sun. And then when you finish that plan, if you and that person both feel good about it, or theoretically, I try and have like three people if possible kind of be a part of that as well too. So like, you know, if, if I am looking at it one way and two people that I really respect are looking at it differently, okay, maybe I have a problem. Although it could also be that they're wrong and you might be right. And I think it's the test of an entrepreneur to be in that situation where it's two on one, right? <laughs> Three on one. And you're like, I appreciate your perspective. I respectfully see it differently. I'm going to keep moving, right? Yep. Those moments happen. I do. I try and put myself in a place as much as humanly possible 
so I can at least have those conversations with people I respect and appreciate that I think respect and appreciate me to make sure I'm not inside my own head. I'll give you an example of that uh, or give the audience an example of this to just kind of get concrete on this. There's a couple times where people have asked me to do something along the lines of what you're talking about. You know, granted, I do it at a much dumber level than the people you're working with, I think. But, you know, I'll, I'll sketch out a model for their business and I'll say, guys, this only works if you can get customers at scale via Facebook ads for less than $20 per person. And that's really hard to do. Do you think you can do that? And then you kind of go, no, I don't think we can get customers at scale for less than 20 bucks. So we got to rethink them some things here to your point. So maybe you raise prices, maybe, you know, whatever there's, you adjust, but that's one of those things where you check an assumption that you had and it kind of reveals a weak point in the idea. Absolutely. And I'll, you know, for me, um, in my career, the, the one decision, the substantial decision I made where most people pushed back on me when I left the music industry to like start my skateboard action sports management company from scratch across the country. A lot of people thought I was crazy, right? And like at that time, good fight was just cresting with revenue, right? And we had kind of battled through the challenges of ferret and like having to divest from our partnership with the Warner music group and like we just got things cooking and I was like, I need to change things up. And everyone's like, you're crazy. And look, by the way, on paper, terrible move. But in <laughs> right. my gut, so I had to do it. And like, and for me, and I, you're right, man, I'm glad you brought up this point about just kind of pushing back on people, even if you're in the minority. What I can't do when I put a lot, I'll have gut reactions that are more knee jerk that can be wrong often. But when I really commit myself to thinking about something and I've just got this feeling in my gut, this is what I got to do, I can't fight against it. I yeah. literally can't fight against it, right? And I think those are times that it's really important to listen to yourself and you've got to kind of buck against the majority if you feel that strong about it. Are you a Tony Robbins fan at all? I am. I, I'm not like I've, – I've consumed a ton of his content – but I'm not obsessed with him. Yeah, but same here. Yep. He has changed my life twice just by random. I don't even listen to his stuff or consume his stuff that often. But when I do, kind of almost without fail, it makes some big light bulb go off for me. The thing you're talking about that just happened to me most recently, which is why I started to do some of the consulting stuff that we talked about a while ago, is because I heard him give a talk about what you're talking about answering the call. That you, the call is there. You hear it, and most people are too scared to answer the call, and because of that, they miss an opportunity. And I think, and 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 I heard him say that, and I was like, man, there's so many times in my life when I was afraid to answer the call, and in hindsight, I wish I had, you know. And it's that's the feeling to me. It's like you can hear the call, and you have to answer it. You just have to. One hundred. You have to answer it, like. No matter where you are in life. You have to. Right? You have no choice. You have no choice, man. Like when I started my company at 45, right, with a wife, two kids, a mortgage, um, it was scary, right? It was super. And I was going back to being an entrepreneur. And it had been a few years. And truthfully, 
I wasn't even 100% sure what I was doing with my business. But to your point, I had that call and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take my first step and then I'm going to start figuring it out along the way. And fortunately, my idea was at least cohesive enough that there were some investors that bet on me, right? So for me, I had to modify my lifestyle to like mitigate the risk yeah. of answering yeah. the call, right? But you got to answer the call. Yeah. And to me, what people don't realize is they can deal with their time management differently. They can deal with like their personal finances differently. Like you need to exhaust yourself modifying your lifestyle to make sure you can answer that call before you just say, I can't do it. It's not possible. You got to sell your car, move into a studio apartment. Okay, do it. Straight up. Or shut up. One or the other. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I don't mean to be harsh about it. It's just, that's the reality. I don't think most people, you know, I, I would not consider myself one of them, but I've been around some pretty fucking high level entrepreneurs and they operate at a level of intensity and commitment that makes that would make normal people just fucking melt from spending an hour in their shoes. Absolutely correct. And they also, they just live their lives very differently, right? Look, man, for, you know, years, like well into my 30s, you know, I was watching everything HBO had to offer, right? Like The Wire, Sopranos, like obsessed with it obsessed with like Madden football, right? My video games. And I just, and I was still like working my ass off, but there was so much more time as well too. And like now video games aren't in my life, right? TV outside of like watching like football on a Sunday during the fall, not in my life, right? Like I, I have cut so much out of my life to be able to prioritize being there for my family and building a startup yep. at the age of 50, right? But like it, there's just more there for people than what they really understand. What often they neglect to do is be really honest with themselves about how they're living their lives. Exactly. Because I was the same way, which is why I can say that. Yeah, I think about when I was, you know, in my 20s, and I spent, I put a hundred hours into Final Fantasy Tactics. I'm like, what? A hundred fucking hours? Like, what could I have done with a hundred hours of my life when I was in my fucking 20s, the prime of my fucking youth? What was I thinking? So true, man. And I'm not saying that life is all about work or anything like that. I don't actually think that at all. My point is just understand what your priorities are and commit to them. And your priorities might not be work. Your priorities might be having the chillest life possible. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You just need to align your actions with your goals. Perfectly put. It's exactly right. And for me, like work is actually not my number one priority. It's my third priority. Number one is my relationships with my family, with my wife and our families. Number two is my mental and physical health. Number three is work. For anybody listening, I'm, I'm not at all one of these people that you know i'm not a, a a hustle addict or anything like that the opposite your priorities are exactly what my priorities are right and i you know having having a 13 year old and having a 10 year old uh two daughters like as they get older i know my time with them is kind of uh it's good it's going to be running short over time so like i got to make sure i am present and connected with them 
And as I get older and as the stakes get higher, I've got to take care of myself. Right. First and foremost, you know, it's I I have a, you know, workout regimen or meditation or whatever. Like, got to do it. Because, by the way, if I'm not like if I'm not centered on doing that, I'm not as good with my family. I'm not as good with my business. The one thing I realized, man, because I do look, I, I love the process of building and working. I actually don't anticipate retiring. Like I think I'm going to be doing something forever. I mean, what else would you do? Sit around and read a fucking newspaper? <laughs> right. I don't understand retirement. That's it. If I over index on work and I'm not there for my family or I'm not taking care of myself, I know my work suffers as well too. So the reality yeah. is, Having the priorities the way you stated it, I think actually makes you more effective with work versus if you actually over-indexed on your work. Yep, I can be 100% focused on my work when the other parts of my life are in a good place. I don't have to worry about it, think about it. You know, so I mean, my wife and I don't fight exactly, but like if we're ever having a disagreement about something, I literally can't work. I will not do anything until that disagreement is resolved. Yeah. And then once it's resolved, Cool. It's out of my head and I can get back to work. But until then, everything else goes on pause. Makes perfect sense, man. And maybe to some people that might sound, I don't know, that might sound weird. Like, oh, why don't you just let it go? But it's it, to me, that's like having a festering wound that you're not treating. Those moments when they're left unresolved, man, like it makes it difficult to focus. Right. And like, I, I can't imagine that like a human can have moments like that and perfectly focus right with their work with, but if they can god bless them i'm just not wired that way well i think that's probably when you see a lot of people and you know i've had a few of these maybe, maybe not quite this bad but i've had a few of these experiences you see these people who realize later in life that yeah they were successful at this thing but they're divorced their kids are resentful and they're 50 pounds overweight and they're wondering what the fuck did i do all this for 100 percent. finn I'll, I'll say like Towards my end in the music industry, I could have been going down that road, right? Like I, I didn't have my priorities in line. Fortunately, you know, I, I was young enough that I could get myself together. But traveling way too much, right? Like drinking way too much, sleeping way too little, right? Like I, I got so wrapped up in the social aspects of the music industry, far beyond where it would ever be productive for me. There is a very important social aspect that's critical to actually doing business. Absolutely. I just, I, w I was way over what was necessary, right? And it was because I just didn't have myself together, right? And you know, it's interesting having stepped away from like the music industry for many years now, the people that I really valued back then are like there with me today, even though... I don't spend a fraction of the time with them I used to, right? But I can honestly look back in retrospect being like, man, like I could have done things differently. I could have spent more time on myself or with my family back then. But it's all part of the journey. Like I know I wouldn't be where I'm at now if I wasn't that guy back then. Yeah.
Well, I guess the reason why I wanted to have this conversation about this stuff is, you know, for anybody here listening to these old men uh, talk about how stupid they were in their 20s, uh, you know, to some extent, your 20s is about fucking up and learning from your mistakes. But at the same time, man, if if I could save the younger version of me from making some of those extremely painful mistakes, I would sure like to. No doubt. I mean, Finn, with, with that said, like when you look at your, your 20s and into your early 30s, like. Do you look back being like, holy cow, like I, I am a substantial evolution from what I used to be then? Like, have you kind of gone through that? Oh, for sure. For sure. I'm the same, fundamentally the same person as I was then. Just a much leaner, meaner, smarter, more efficient, more compassionate, empathetic, thoughtful version of it. That was the big thing for me is, you know, I'm an only child and my mom was a fairly dysfunctional person in lots of ways. So I didn't learn how to be thoughtful of other people until way later in my life than I wish I would have. And it's not like I was an asshole that didn't care. I just literally didn't know how to be that way until I was way older than I should have been. I know how that goes, man. <laughs> and that, and that you, know, you know, you can't, to your point, you can't decouple these things from business. Like the reason I talk about personal development in conjunction with business so much, they're the same thing as we talked about. Like if your personal life is a mess and you have no ability to like regulate your own emotions and stuff, you're going to crash and burn in business. Eventually we've all seen people do it that they had some initial success and then they went off the fucking deep end and burn the whole thing down. And you're like, dude, what happened to that guy? Absolutely. You know, when people talk about like work life balance, like I, I just look at like, to me, these three things, right? Like I, I break, I've got these three pillars in my life, right? Which is like family and friends that are like family, right? Self and work. And they're interconnected, man. They're interwoven for that matter as well too. And, and I, I can't separate them and put them on a scale and say like, oh, how do these things balance out? That's just, that's not the way I look at my life now, at least. Did you always feel that way about the family piece of it or is that something that came later in life it came later in life i'll tell you when it really when it really kicked in for me when we moved from philadelphia to to carlsbad my girls were moving away from everything they knew to support me on a high-risk business opportunity and they're like five or six or so then so at that point, yeah, my oldest was four and my youngest was like one, right? So like, you know, where they were, their connectivity with grandparents, my wife leaving all of her friends, all of our family. We literally had no, I had friends that were like friends from business, right? She knew no one out here. And like, it, it hit me really hard where I'm like, man, like my, my family is making a huge sacrifice for me like i need to like i need to understand that i need to appreciate it man i need to be way better for them ironically that was step one but then when it really got heavy we were out here for like a year and a half right before rob hired me to become ceo of deerdick enterprises and i told my wife when i would switch into action sports my travel would go way down. Like I'm not going to Germany for festivals or, or the UK. I said, you know, everything's kind of in Southern California. And Rob's business was in LA and we were like in San Diego. And after being here for a year and a half, I ended up 
living in a loft in L.A. <laughs> Monday through Thursday for an entire year. I mean, it might as well be Germany with that traffic between San Diego and L.A. <laughs> I mean, without a doubt, man. And like, I, I, I literally like was not home. I actually sold my family on I'd be home more than ever. And to your point, I was home less than ever. Did you? You must have felt really guilty about that. By the end of the year, man. It was brutal. Like it, 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 it had destroyed me. And I made the decision like this can't happen. Like I want to keep working with Rob, but I, I have to be back living with my family, which is when I just came up with this crazy idea where like I built a mobile office. Like I got a Suburban. I ripped a row of seats out of a Suburban. I put in a laptop desk wireless and like I hired a kid to drive me back and forth to LA oh. every day. And I and I wouldn't leave for LA until after the kids went off to school. So that was kind of, and I did that actually for six and a half years before moving my office down to Carlsbad. So it's been an evolution, but you know, I'd say step one was you know, appreciating how my family supported me when we moved out here. Step two was just like, I'm, I'm in LA and I'm like, man, like I am, I'm blowing this. Like I need no. to check myself heavily right now. And so it's been an evolution over time, man. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but I can't. Well, yeah, I guess that's the reason why I wanted to talk about this is for anybody younger listening to this, be ambitious, but don't forget about the stuff that's actually close to you right now. Like don't wait until it's too late until you've fucked up a relationship that can't be repaired. So remember that stuff. That's my two cents anyway. 100% agreed. Like I, I was on the razor's edge of blowing it. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I literally felt myself on that razor's edge and have had to pull back. And uh, I'm grateful I did. And I'm grateful that like my wife, stuck with me through all this as well too you know i've heard i listen to all these entrepreneur podcasts and stuff and i've heard that's come up so many times over the years and all these interviews is the founders saying how critical their family and specifically their wife was in their success and for anybody else out there like listen to how many times you hear that because it's real and, and I, i'll say this finn like i i can at 50 look back and realize that, right? I'll be married 20 years next May. I should have realized that way sooner than I did. Like, you know, even if when you and I, if we would have had this conversation at 40, I wouldn't have talked about it this way. So yeah, I mean, I, I again, I wish I would have, but I was a slow learner on many things. Well, I mean, as I always say, normal people don't invest their lives in bands called hate breed terror and death threat so you know we're, we've all got something to learn there before i let you go one last question again super broad but you know a lot of things you talked about as far as you know how to bring an idea to life involved bringing together you know a great network of smart experienced people which is awesome but let's pretend this is the 22 year old version of yourself that doesn't have access to those people doesn't have money to pay them you got to do it on your own what would your advice be for the 22 year old version of you as far as bringing these ideas to life and doing that diligence on your own 
when you're not necessarily, when you didn't go to school for business, you don't know how to do it. It's a really good question. I actually just spoke last week at a master's class that um, was full of entrepreneurs in their early 20s and was asked a similar question. And I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on my response. I really believe that if you are thoughtful and you are diligent with your follow-up, you can actually build relationships with cold outreach, right? I have I've secured investment capital off of relationships I built off LinkedIn, right? Like and I've I've actually had phone calls and meetings with people that have like reached out to me off of LinkedIn. Now look, I I will also say that I can detect when somebody is just like jamming me or not being impatient or kind of vesting in a relationship with me for the wrong reasons. Yeah. I think I'm a pretty good judge of that. But I, I, I do think trying to, I mean, by the way, like in the music industry, when I was in my twenties, I knew nobody. So strong management, right? There's a little bit of a diversion, but this is important yeah. information. So back then, I'm in my 20s. I'm a kid in Philadelphia, starting in the music business, knowing nobody. What I would do, I would train up to New York twice a week. I would run around at the bars, go to all the showcases, just try and meet people wherever I could. So back then, strong management, who had H2O, Fahrenheit 451, Scarhead, like in my mind, like those guys were like killing it. And it was either on the first H2O release or Fahrenheit 451 or both, it actually had their office number inside the album artwork, right? That's right. And I would just call them. I would call them, right? I, I To this day, I still remember their office phone number. And like, they picked up the phone, right? And I ended up doing like work for the Philadelphia Music Conference and they let me put on a show with Fahrenheit 451, who was like one of my favorite band. And like, Literally, I what's funny about like me, like in the hardcore scene, man, it was just me and my brother went to shows. I, I, I knew nobody in the hardcore scene in Philly in the 90s, but I just started to reach out to people because I was passionate and some people picked up on like, all right, he's coming from the right place. Right. So I don't know if this is the right answer or not, but I I. I have found so much success through really thoughtful networking. Mm -hmm. That's where I go, man. I do. Like I, I like find oh, and I, I I believe that networking now may be easier than it was when I was in my 20s and I didn't have the internet. So I so that's where I go to, man. It's, sure. it's just I sure. I have advanced through relationship building more than anything else. So my default is to kind of fall back to that. But how would you answer the question you answered me? I think everything you said is 100% true. The one thing I would add on top of that is a way to get those people to take you seriously and help you and want to be your ally is by showing them that you have done a lot of smart, critical thinking on your own ahead of time. So when you go to them and you say, hey man, I love what you're doing. I have a specific question for you. I want to show you, you know, the six months of research I did to get here and where I'm stuck. And maybe you can help me get unstuck. 
as opposed to DMing them or whatever and saying, I got an idea, what do I do? So critical thinking and doing your homework goes a very long way. And whether you are a subject matter in anything or not, you can just by pure critical thinking, you know, as you know from mathematics, you can go a long fucking ways with just straight up critical thinking. You know, I've read lots of, I'm not a scientist, but I worked with a lot of them at like Procter and Gamble and some other places. I, I realized I could read an academic study in, say, chemical engineering, and I wouldn't be able to have meaningful commentary on the methodology or something like that, but I could understand and potentially even challenge the conclusions of it to an expert. I would say, well, I, I read this study, and I don't understand all of it, but it seems to me like they're kind of making a little bit of a, a, a leap with this part of it. And they go, yeah, you're right, they were. And I was like, oh. I don't know shit about chemical engineering and just with critical thinking, I was able to at least understand this piece. And I think for an entrepreneur, you know, to your point about getting out of your comfort zone and all these times in which, you know, you've got to make that leap of faith and bet on yourself. Critical thinking is such an important skill. And, and I don't hear people talk about it very often. You're so right. And, and I will say, and I wasn't doing this in my twenties, but I damn sure do it now. Preparation Preparation has been the single most important reason for my growing myself and my business for the last five years, right? I will, I'll have an important phone call and I will literally script out the phone call, right? I will walk myself through the script and think about the other person taking different sides on the account. Do you ever rehearse them with somebody? Like practice? Absolutely. Yeah, I do too. And like when I'll do presentations, I will run through a presentation a hundred times, like to the point where it, it annoys me <laughs> that I'm doing it again, right? We had last week, we had this Zoom presentation for a major film studio. There were like a dozen people from the film studio and like for two days, man, I shut down and I ran through this presentation over and over and over. And then like when I would like go through it again, I would like come up with like different pausing points because people were going to come at me with a question like what happens if my presentation is interrupted here? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? Like exhausted myself. And it was the best presentation I've ever given in my entire life. Of course it was. Life. It was so – I – it's a damn shame, man, that I spent no time in my 20s thinking about preparation. So to your point, while my default is for sure networking and it's how I got through my 20s, if I had if I had my networking with my preparation mm -hmm. I do now, who fucking knows where yeah. I'd be now? But thank God I know that now. A big moment of realization for me on that point was when I worked at the company I worked at before, Creative Live, which was an online education company that was backed by some big time investors. If anyone here follows Silicon Valley, we were backed by like Greylock and Social Capital, which are two of the best on the planet. And uh, my friend and boss was the founder of the company, a guy named Chase Jarvis, super accomplished, extremely busy guy. And I saw him take 20 minutes to write two sentence emails sometimes, like to the COO or to an investor or something, he would, he would go, here, help me write this email. And we would spend 20 minutes on two sentences because it was an important email. He didn't spend 20 minutes on every email, 
But on the one that mattered, he did. Absolutely. Huge, huge learning. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I know you got a lot of stuff going on. I'll let you go now. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug or suggest or closing words of wisdom for everybody? Nah, I just, I love this, man. This was great. I mean, it's funny. I came into it thinking about we were going to get deep in the weeds on, you know, certain bands and tours and which I'm always excited to do. But like this conversation was awesome, man. And I, I hope, you know, I hope your listeners get some kind of value or enjoyment out of it because I really loved it. So thank you. Cool. Happy to hear it and enjoy the rest of the week. All right, man. Thanks, Finn. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.